You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of the fourth webinar organised as part of Framing Ageing, a clinical, cultural and social dialogue. The webinar consisted of Panel 6, Practice 1. The panel featured papers by Dr Hilary Moss from University of Limerick, who spoke on the role of the arts in the lives of older people before, during and after a hospital stay, aesthetic neglect or enrichments. The respondent was Tara Byrne from Age and Opportunity. Dr. Katie Featherstone from Cardiff University presented on Wandering the Wards, Everyday Hospital Care and Its Consequences for People Living with Dementia. The respondent was Dr. Ulla Kriebernek from the University of Graz. Professor Desmond J. Tobin from University College Dublin presented on Our Aging Skin, Can We Ever Feel Comfortable in It? Slash with It. The respondent was Professor Robert Sveiningberg from Leiden University. A video of the webinar, including the slides used by the speakers, is available on the project website, framingaging.ucd.ie, and on UCD Humanities Institute's YouTube channel. The webinar was introduced by Director of the UCD Humanities Institute, Professor Anna Fuchs. I'd like to welcome you all to our fourth interdisciplinary Framing Aging webinar. And before I hand over to our panellists, I thought I might like to say a few words, just looking back over our journey to where we are now. So um, our first webinar adopted a largely sociological lens to explore aging as a multifaceted phenomenon which explodes clinical categories, roughly speaking. And then the last two webinars honed in on literary and artistic representations of and responses to aging. And in all three webinars, we could see that how we age is shaped by ethnicity, gender, education, access to healthcare, income, as well as by powerful cultural frames and cultural narratives. So looking back over the various webinars, it seems to me that we are confronted with two opposing narratives. On the one hand, there is the successful aging model, which is, prevalent in in the social domain and which promotes the agency of the self, perhaps at the expense of social solidarity. And at the other end of the spectrum is the decline model of aging, which is often used to strip older people of their agency and the ability to to determine their own lives. And of course, we discussed this also in relation to the COVID-19 public narrative, at least uh, during the first uh, lockdown. While the successful aging narrative is usually associated with the third age, the decline narrative is more commonly associated with the dark fourth age, uh, a life stage that makes us feel extremely uncomfortable. And um, I'd like to refer you at this point to um, uh, an article published recently in uh, the Financial Times by the former advisor to David Cameron, 
namely Camilla Cavendish, who's a journalist uh, uh, in the Financial Times, and she's also the author of a book called Extra Time, 10 Lessons for an Aging World. And on the 23rd of January, she published an opinion piece entitled, and I have it here in front of me, COVID shows that aging is like a disease. We should treat it accordingly. And this article promotes genetic engineering and the development of pharmaceutical anti-aging treatments. And thus, I think it exemplifies the kind of monolithic biomedical perspective uh, that uh, our webinar series attempts to correct. So today's webinar is entitled Practice, but it is a continuation of our conversation over the uh, past uh, uh, few months. And our panel consists of three speakers today, which means that we have a bit more time, we're less pressurized. Our first speaker is Hilary Moss, who is a senior lecturer in music therapy at the World Academy of Music and Dance at the University of Limerick. And until fairly recently, she was also the director of the National Center for Arts and Health at Tala Hospital. And she's just published a book, Music and Creativity in Healthcare Settings. Does music matter? And uh, I'm now handing over to you, Hilary. Thanks very much, Anne, and good afternoon. Great, thanks so much. I'm gonna to talk today about the role of the arts in the lives of older people before, during and after a hospital stay and talk about my work primarily in Tala Hospital, working with Des O'Neill um, and researching uh, how older people use the arts and aesthetics as part of their everyday life. So what I'm gonna talk about is a survey. The starting point is a survey that we did of 150 older people in hospital and asking them about their cultural and aesthetic interests before, during and after hospital stay. And that will then be, I suppose, a jumping off point to look at how the aesthetics and arts um, allow people to have some kind of control over their environment and their experience in healthcare and living with chronic illness. And I think a, a really central part of this is looking at the instrumental and the intrinsic value of the arts in healthcare settings. So just the starting point is the, the survey, I hope you can see these slides okay, the survey of the 150 people, which was back in 2015. And I'm going to give you a whirlwind tour of the results, um, the kind of key things. So in terms of pre-hospital, we mapped what people are interested in doing in terms of art forms using the Arts Council of Ireland list of art forms, which are about 15 different ways of engaging and different uh, mediums. The most popular art forms for this population uh, of people mainly over 75 were dancing, music and film. And this was interesting in that I think that often when we think about uh, designing programmes for older people or working with older people in terms of health and well-being and the arts, we there's a danger that we tend to decide for people what they might want and plan it for them and not actually ask anyone what they're doing in the first place. And I'm going to quote Des because he has a, has a great phrase that, you know, if you or I went to, uh, to wanted to engage, we'd go to a concert or the theatre or a film, whereas we give older people in healthcare settings and social care settings a workshop. Um, so, you know, I think we need to be thinking about what they want. And what came out of this, one of the interesting findings was the dancing, that that was hugely important to older people in their earlier life, perhaps particularly an, an Irish group of older people who recalled the dances they went to in great detail 
And uh, uh, one of the results of that was to have a dancer in residence in the age-related healthcare unit, which I think none of us had really been able to imagine being possible. The other kind of key finding was that there were huge drops in arts activity levels during hospital stay and post-hospital. So I'm just going to talk about during the hospital stay. Um, quite uh, shocking statistics, but probably quite normal across all hospitals. So only 42% of this group of 150 older people watch TV of their choice in hospital and less watch films of their choice. Only 34% had control over whether the radio or TV was on or off. So really important problems here in terms of having control over your environment and being able to individualise your space. Um, but also interesting to note that people listen to music they read for pleasure. And what we found and what we find in the research is that participative arts are given all the attention when receptive arts are actually what many of us do. So many of us receive music or we read, you know, I suppose there's a whole discussion about receptive and passive and, you know, you're still engaged even if you're a, you know, a, 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 an audience member. But I think it's important that we also look at those because they really are underrepresented in the research. And then there was a significant issue around noise and as was noise pollution. So post-hospital, there was a large reduction in the numbers of older people who then attended cultural activities. And we know that, you know, it, where people are frail, if they come to hospital, they may well not get back up to their former level of activity. But there were significant things reported by this group that it was partly the lack of physical mobility, you know, that comes with maybe a stroke or another issue. But there were and transport issues and those sort of barriers, but a big one was the loss of confidence and social isolation. So I think it really gives a message to cultural institutions to need to be thinking about how they engage audiences of older people. Um, so I wanted to just talk a little bit about negative and everyday aesthetics, and I would really recommend these two books to you, particularly Eureka Saito's work on everyday aesthetics. So I suppose the idea of this is that um, Things that we use every day, such as the coffee cup we drink from, the sheets we sleep in in our bed, are really important aesthetic uh, moments in our lives and perhaps much more important than access to high art when we're ill or in hospital. So thinking quite differently about aesthetics. Um, the other person I would recommend is Brian Lawson, a book called The Language of Space. He's an architect who looked, he's retired now, but he looked at psychology and and space healthcare spaces and in terms of design and really interesting work where he showed that it didn't make any difference to your your outcomes in terms of your health and recovery if you were in a single bedroom in hospital or a shared ward but what makes the difference is whether you have a choice or some control over that and if it's your preferred environment so you do better where you feel you're in the environment you want to be in but it doesn't actually make any difference which environment you're in otherwise so just a few examples of a, um, everyday aesthetics, a few different types of bed, from the hospital bed to a, a very lavish bed. Um, and, you know, obviously ones that are designed specifically for children. And the one in the middle is an art therapy project by somebody who worked in Tala Hospital, uh, Amy O'Neill, who worked with this little boy, Sammy, uh, while he was in traction and created a pirate ship out of his bed, which is a really one of the most creative projects I saw in giving him his own space and his his identity and what a fabulous job they did together. So can, can we do the do aesthetics and the arts and humanities 
give us a sense of control over our environment and experience when we're in healthcare? Is it relevant? Is it important? Well, a couple of examples from what well, the one on the right is from Tala Hospital, not the one on the left. I'm sure no, no offices are like that. Um, but I suppose the, you know, coming into hospital for most of us is it, there's an anxiety involved. Even if it's something as minor as a blood test, people do tend to get anxious. They're in the unknown. They're in some something, an environment that's institutional and clinical. It's just different and strange. And I think people can get very nervous. And for some reason, we become quite passive and de-skilled. We don't know very much um, and we don't know how our bodies work and we have to trust in people. And I think the aesthetics can make a huge difference in building that kind of communication of welcome, of safety, of um, maybe, you know, that this is going to be okay, you're going to be well looked after. And this is an example, I think it's a hospital in Bristol, uh, a chemotherapy suite, that ha and the, the screens are individually commissioned by an artist. And you can see there the colour, it just creates a much more uh, comforting environment, perhaps also quite individual possibly stimulating because of the artwork, and also, of course, personal space, privacy. So if you're interested in this area, I'd recommend to you the um, Rutledge Companion to Health Humanities, which came out earlier this year. Um, and I think this, this quote sums up for me some of the issues for humanities in healthcare. The humanities appear to have little instrumental purpose. Thus, it is difficult to justify their purpose in life in general, let alone in healthcare. So a couple, of, I'm just going to talk a little bit about instrumental versus uh, intrinsic uh, value of the arts in healthcare. So a couple of examples. So this is an MRI scanner and you can see, this is in Tala, and you can see on the ceiling a commissioned artwork. It's really beautiful. It's very, it's, it's very instrumental in its, in its reasoning in that it's, it's to help people feel less anxious, to distract people while they look at the image. Um, and I suppose that's an example of the instrumental value. This also... Um, working again with the same art therapist. This is syringe art. So the child is using the safe part of a syringe to make art. And these are children who are afraid of needles and have diabetes. So there's a, a huge issue here in terms of compliance with, with pinprick tests and injections. So this is a very direct clinical use of art to help those children to comply with treatment. Some other examples with older people of making art in the hospital. And I think perhaps these are more intrinsic benefits in that it's about enjoying yourself, passing your time in a much more constructive way um, and expressing yourself. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But I would recommend this film to you. It's a 15 minute film called The Dance Back Home. And it was filmed in the age related unit in Tala. And it's of a dancer in residence called Ailish Claffey. So this came directly from that, that piece of research where we, we realised we wanted to try and have a dancer in the place. And it's a beautiful film that shows both intrinsic and instrumental values. So there's a lot of links with the physiotherapists in terms of helping people in their rehab to exercise through dance. But there's also, as you see here, Ailish dancing outside, um, just the intrinsic benefits of dance as well. And I suppose... Um, this links in, I often come back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So although in hospital, many people told me that they actually want to park their aesthetic interests when they're in hospital because they're dealing with pain, they're dealing with maybe life-limiting issues. They're, they're, they're busy at the bottom two levels of this pyramid, the biological, physiological and safety needs. But in that, in that hierarchy of psychological needs, aesthetics, beauty, creativity are named 
and they are specifically important in our psychology and our balance. And it may be that at times in healthcare, they are left to one side, but they can't be ignored forever. And they can't be ignored if someone's in a longer term healthcare institution, such as a nursing home. So I think the most important intrinsic value of the arts in a hospital context, are, I think, is around narrative and telling my story. So stories help us to communicate meaning, insight, perspective, and to articulate complexities. And I think it's about those, you know, those big questions and reflecting on life um, that stories make a way to make sense of our human experience. Um, so, for example, working with medical students, I don't think it's about necessarily increasing people's empathy or listening skills that we have medical humanities. For me, the, one of the main things is just understanding people's experience through their stories, whether that's in film or song, um, and really understanding what it might be like for someone else in that way. Um, and I think as well, I'm very uh, against this kind of idea of a split between the STEM and humanities. I, I, my experience is not that, that there's two completely different ways of looking at the world. And I think where sometimes we meet is in these grey areas where there might be ethical conundrums in healthcare, there may be kind of unanswerable questions, there may be sort of living with a long-term condition and not necessarily having all the answers, that sometimes then uh, that's where we can find shared space. So this is the best book I've read in a while in terms of medical, like narratives of healthcare. Um, Sinead Gleason's book, Constellations. I'd really recommend it to you. So perhaps humanity shift the territory of bioethics from the certainty of the empirical and rational world to the uncertainty, ambiguity and indeterminacy of the artistic. It's very tempting, and I've seen this many times in hospital, to drop the talk about beauty altogether and steer the discussion towards more quantifiable matters such as cost, sustainability and economic benefits. And perhaps art is needed to gesture towards mysteries left by science. So I think I have just a couple more minutes, hopefully, yeah. Um, I just wanted to tell you about a project, a composer in residence project with the composer Ian Wilson and members of the Irish Chamber Orchestra. And Ian composed a piece based on the experience of dementia in this case. And you see here the first performance in the hospital. And I just wanted to play a little clip of the first movement just to illustrate how we might think about a people's experience through the arts. So um, this is written for violin, viola, double bass, who you see here, and saxophone. And in this short clip, this movement is called The Appointment. And in this clip, Ian, is when he wrote this, was exploring the experience of being in the outpatient clinic with a person with dementia, with the clinicians, probably the doctor, maybe a nurse, maybe two or three doctors, I'm not sure, but a lot of busyness and the family members also there, also with their agenda. So a very busy clinic, and you'll hear that in the string players. And then the saxophone tends in this work to represent um, the person with dementia. And you may hear how, how this person is experiencing it and how connected or disconnected they are, or how their voice is being heard or ignored. <laughs> Thank you. 
So, I mean, that work, if you're interested in that, and if you're interested in music and dementia, we're having a special event on the, 14th, the 15th of March. I'll put it into the chat. Um, Des and I are organising that, and it's uh, exploring music and positive ageing and dementia. So I suppose in terms of control, it's an area I've got very interested in, um, whether we can uh, control how music is used to benefit people in healthcare and how the humanities are always seen as something very positive, but actually they can harm and, it, and music can cause damage to people in distress. So I just wanted to kind of make a mention of that, particularly an example being how music was used to control in Guantanamo Bay and in the Holocaust as a, a form of torture um, and how music sometimes connects social groups together very strongly, but that can actually alienate other people. So my colleagues in Northern Ireland would find that very commonly in terms of music choices, perhaps in a nursing home, would very clearly um, bring together people from one religious tradition over another. And just to finish off to say that uh, I suppose interdisciplinarity is, I think for me, the way to go in terms of humanities and healthcare and clinical um, research. And this book is the one I would recommend to you, Rethinking Interdisciplinarity Across the Social Sciences and Neurosciences. So thank you very much. Thank you. Um, thank you, Hilary, for a fascinating paper, which gave us insight into um, very, um, you know, progressive projects in hospital settings, and hopefully we'll see more of them. Now, we have a respondent, Tara, Tara Burns, of age and opportunity will respond to your paper now. Thanks, Hilary, and thanks, Anne. Um, so I'd like to speak to Hilary's presentation in the context of cultural policy and cultural policy studies. So this research and presentation showcases the importance of human autonomy in shaping our environment, whether that be in terms of artistic expression and the shaping of our world that occurs through that and or having crucial agency in clinical situations where we might be vulnerable. But to me, its advocacy mode speaks more loudly to the battle still to be won by the arts in seeking legitimacy from the state and thus ultimately from the public and the public purse. As many people who work in the arts would believe, the arts has little legitimacy at government level due to a problem with its policy function. And that is that its policy function is unclear. Most policy is aimed at solving some kind of problem or preventing a problem. But what problem does the arts solve? So as the paper suggests through its invocation of the humanities, the arts are useless, useless, or have little instrumental purpose. And so we might say they have no clear policy function. They're intangible, they're hard to measure. The real impact that they have on us takes place over such a long period of time that notwithstanding this kind of research, they don't fit easily into hard evidence-based models that subscribe to ideas about what gets measured, gets managed. And we've heard that a lot over the years and vice versa. So critically, they're hard to monetize given their basis in the free exchange of ideas and not excludable products. So this creates difficulties for the capitalist model that we live by in the West, which works on an investment and return basis. And we know what they mean by return. So that's where this research comes in, neatly showing us in apparent contradiction to my earlier statement, how useful that the arts can be, in this case in hospitals, notwithstanding their inherent value. So this research adds to the body of advocacy needed and used by those perpetually seeking support from funding bodies, bodies who may only understand functionality. 
So this, as many of us will know, is a contested area in cultural policy studies due to questions it raises of instrumentalism and the arts, as Hillary has mentioned. How the arts is used as an instrument by neoliberal governments to achieve something other than its value in and of itself, which is obviously contested, what that means, and how devaluing this is of deeper and more profound understandings and experiences of what the arts can mean vis-a-vis -vis culture and human dignity, something hugely important in clinical environments. It's a criticism also leveled at arts organizations, not just governments, in particular what used to be called community arts, now participatory arts, where potentially purist notions of the function of the arts are muddied by social and political motivations. And my own role in Agent Opportunity fits into this category. In this framing, the arts is understood as having an intrinsic or internal value, having value in and of itself, as I mentioned, for its own sake, in contrast to the arts as a means to an end and a health well-being outcome, as this research would demonstrate. In fact, arts organizations in the sector in general, in general has for decades developed instrumental arguments for the arts by way of creating legitimacy for their work and support at government level, despite how they might feel about this personally, i.e. making that argument, they might not feel comfortable with that. Often apparently equivocating between intrinsic and extrinsic valuations in their arguments. However, it's hard to disentangle intrinsic from instrumental values. Typical arts intrinsic values center, in some scholars' view, around the personal benefits of social, cognitive health and well-being, as we've heard in this presentation. But these can also be viewed as external benefits which lead to economic advantages and health advantages, obviously, or secondary impacts. In this case, lower economic burden on the state arising from less health intervention costs. As such, the question must be asked as to whether the arts and health and the arts and older people as sectors, which both center on progressing other agendas through the arts, i.e. promoting health, well-being and older people, are inherently instrumental. And, what, and does that make this paper or presentation an instrumentalist view of the arts? As I suggest, that's at best debatable, partly depending on the motivation for the arts interventions in the hospital referred to. Are the health and advocacy outcomes outlined in the paper secondary or primary motivations? I think they're primary from what Hillary is saying. But it also depends on who the paper is read by, who the audience for the paper is, as to whether you'll see it as instrumental or not. This raises the distinction between arts in health and arts therapy models. An aesthetic model of the arts, arts for its own sake, if you like, versus a medical model geared to medical outcomes. In actual fact, most arts activity in clinical situations achieved both. So in the end, I suspect governments fudge the issue by partly supporting the arts because it's expected of them as civilized states, and like education, partly for hoped for economic outcomes, while still alluding to the principle of the arts as a public good, available to all, indivisible, non-excludable, and thus hard to make money from, like education, suffering from market failure. So the concept of instrumentalism is one of interpretation, in my view. The key message here being that the arts in medical or care environments can create intrinsic self-actualization and transcendence in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you like, and extrinsic benefits, better all-round recovery rates, etc. And that these blur into one another, rendering the concept of instrumentalism ironically not that useful. A wise artist called Pauline Cummins, who some of us will know here, um, once said to me, we don't know why people make art, but it must be bloody important as we've been making it since history began. I would clearly concur with this, looking to the arts as a form of expression and communication, shaping and reflecting our identity, so key to our visibility amongst the patients and staff when we're in those environments. Many people have said to us, and most recently, 
it keeps my brain active, my fingers nimble, it boosts my self-esteem. Um, the arts are also the ultimate expression of autonomy in my view, due to their intensely personal nature. This position was demonstrated again recently to us in a project we were involved in, which had in which a one-to-one -one conversation between a chronically depressed resident and an artist resulted in him confiding that he hated the color of his room, a room that he rarely left and had been living in for many years. After much negotiation, uh, was the room was the color of the room was painted, uh, completely changing the person's mood, leading to a massive difference. He would now get dressed in the morning, get into his wheelchair, be much more likely to be seen laughing and smiling. So I've aimed to posit the need for papers like Hillary's within the context of thinking about instrumentalism and advocacy for the arts, because it remains such a hot topic, citing the tensions within that and ultimately coming down on the lack of consensus around the term instrumentalism. And of course, of course, how the arts creates all kinds of intended and unintended outcomes. Thank you. Uh Thank you very much uh, for such a detailed and, and passionate, actually, response to uh, Hillary's excellent paper. So obviously, we'll return to uh, the, the, the issues that both of you have raised, uh, and especially, of course, to the issue of the usefulness of, use, of the use, useless arts and uh, the question of functionalism versus intrinsic values, etc. But uh, at this point, I'd like to hand over to Katie uh, Featherstone who will um, be giving her presentation on wandering the wards. Um, but let me just say a few words about Katie. So Katie Featherstone is reader in medical sociology at Cardiff University. And her research uses sociological methods to improve the quality and humanity of care that people living with dementia receive in hospitals. So obviously the two papers uh, go hand in glove. And her work aims to provide understandings of the cultures, organizations, and delivery of dementia care in acute wards. And so unsurprisingly, her paper is entitled Wandering the Wards, Everyday Hospital Care and its Consequences for People Living with Dementia. Uh, so uh, can I hand over to uh, Katie, please? Thanks, Anne. Uh, thanks for that introduction. I'd say that is a work in progress. <laughs> I think we've yet to achieve that yet. And um, also, thank you, for Hilary and um, Des, for that amazing paper. I think what is so wonderful is actually you, you do give us hope. I think that that paper and the work you're doing just shows what can be achieved in our hospitals. I think that is so important. And I'm afraid mine is a little bit darker. <laughs> um, my story is of hospitals I think the aesthetic, absolutely, the material and sensory world is so powerfully there as an ethnographer. It, it just is such a powerful context of care that's really very, it's rarely talked about in those settings at all and very compartmentalized. But um, I'm gonna talk about, yes, wandering the wards, but I'm just gonna give you a kind of a small slice of the work that I'm doing, which is really looking at, at the rules of the ward. I think that's a good way to start thinking about what's going on, on in our hospitals for people with dementia. But I want to start off by just giving you a bit of background of hospital care and the population of people with dementia within them. If I can move my cursor. So, over the last decade, there's been an incredible increase in the number of people living with dementia in our hospitals. Um, massive increases, and there are also high users of um, emergency care 
So 70% of all emergency emissions in the UK are people living with dementia. They're also a particular group that actually they're there not because of their dementia, but they're there because um, early mid-stage dementia, also quite many are also undiagnosed in terms of dementia and they have an unplanned admission for a potentially preventable condition. So typically pneumonia, sepsis, UTIs, fractures. So they're often admitted at this point of crisis as well. And what's important about this, this large population with our hospitals, within our hospitals is that they have incredibly poor outcomes. Um, higher short-term mortality with almost a quarter dying during their, their admission. This is twice the rate um, of dying compared to patients without dementia, but with the same admitting condition. So they really have this high risk of just being um, someone admitted with dementia as an additional condition really does increase your risk in terms of getting home safely. But lots of people say, so why is this a problem? Because dementia, of course, is a, is a progressive and life-limiting condition. So we see in hospitals quite often this culture that it's in some ways deterioration for this population is seen as viewed as natural, unremarkable and inevitable, seen as part of a condition. Once someone has dementia, they have an acute condition, deterioration is seen as normal. So, and in some ways you can say that actually reflects the rates of um, mortality in terms of dementia. It is, um, currently the leading cause of death in England and Wales. And that might have changed, that's this 2019, so that might be slightly different, but I suspect not in, um, in terms of um, COVID. But these cultures, what they hide is, and what my question was when I started to do my work, my work in hospitals is, but what if the cultures of care, what if these low expectations of recovery, the ways in which care is organized and delivered to people living with dementia, within these settings. What if that was significant? That goes back to, again, to that material as well as the, um, the clinical world. What if hospitals and hospital care itself contributes to these high rates of mortality for this population? And of course, we've seen over this last decade, as well as this increasing rise in people with dementia in our hospitals, we've also seen again and again, reports and inquiries that tell us people with living with dementia have poor outcomes, poor experiences. And they also typically talk about culture and say hospital culture is a critical part of this. And so we, we, we actually see this again and again. But what it tells us is on one hand, we have these poor outcomes and we have these reports that keep telling us about these poor outcomes and experiences. But that tells us that something deeply systemic about the inequalities people with dementia experience in the hospital setting. And also that it seems incredibly resistant to change. You know, we know about it. We keep being told about these inequalities. Yet actually nothing really changes for this population. So that was also one of my questions. Why is that? And hospitals and the NHS have responded to this, but this tends to be in a very um, small scale, um, really local initiatives that really, really do not reflect the needs of the populations. So we have new types of wards. So maybe if we just get, you know, new awards with new with names, um, 
for this population that might make things better. And this is quite a kind of a really old um, technique of um, grading people and grading patients by age, by ability, by condition. We have outsourcing of skills. So we have specialist dementia supports teams, enhanced agency nurses coming in to give one-to-one -one care. We have um, identification and awareness schemes, which I've written about separately to identify over the bedside that someone has dementia. There's a sign there saying it, it's a butterfly. Um, and, um, but one thing that really doesn't seem to happen is interventions to really support ward cultures. These are really highly resistant settings. And one thing I really wanted to do is think about actually why are they resistant? What are the cultures within these wards that contribute to these poor outcomes? Because only once we have that can we really think about interventions that might reflect the social, the real life um, social organisation of care, work as done, rather than work as imagined by policymakers and um, uh, institutions. So I've carried out um, two ethnographies with, with colleagues. I'd like to also add that these are all projects that are deeply interdisciplinary and all involve people living with dementia as part of the projects and carers as well. Um, we've looked at the phenomena of refusal of care and also looked at continence practices as well in care. Um, and really the core to our ethnographic approach is um, long-term commitment to field work. So I spent a year in hospital wards across England and Wales, as of my colleagues. And um, I'm just gonna take a, a tiny slice today from uh, my recent book, uh, Wandering the Wards, um, and really talk about the ward as a small society and what are the rules within it. Um, if we go back to some of the really classic ethnography and classic um, work of, of, of um, uh, institutional life, um, was, hospitals have often been described as um, separate from everyday life. Tight little islands, tight islands of vivid and capturing activity. And absolutely, within these wards, people with dementia did seem cut off. Islands within the wards on these hospital beds really isolated from other people. But also hospitals have been described um, as reflecting the wider social world, a small society, society in miniature. And absolutely within these wards, you can see cultures of understanding dementia as a condition understood by non-experts. Non-expert clinicians really reflected the um, non-expert understandings in wider society. Poor understandings, fear and stigma also are very present within these hospital wards. And in my analysis, I've really also drawn on going back to some of the really classic texts to examine um, institutional life and how it might impact on people living with dementia. And one way to look at the culture is to look at the rules within it. And of course, everybody within a hospital, all the patients within it have to learn the rules in some way. We all go into institutional life, any institution, and have that sense of what are the rules here. But it seemed to us that there was a real compulsive communication of the rules of the war to people living with dementia. 
This goes back to really the classic work around permissions and privileges, other groups, other patients, and actually there were very few younger patients within the wards that, that we observed, um, were really allowed privileges and permissions to walk around the wards, to, um, to leave the wards that were not afforded people living with dementia, who were really, there's a very compulsive repetition and re reinforcement of the rules of the wards for this population. And very little flexibility. And in fact, it actually reduced for this group. Flexibility became something impossible. And in times of high stress for staff, actually the rules got tighter. So you got a real tightening of the rules. So I'm just checking my time. I've got five minutes. Um, so I'm just, I've got, there are so many rules within these sites. There are rules, so many rules for people with dementia. There are so many rules for patients. And there are also a huge number of rules for staff as well. And I could go on and on with this, but I'm just gonna highlight a couple just to give you a flavor of how these rules manifest. So a classic rule that I have found in every single ward I've been to, and actually said by every member of staff at some point during the observations is, you are in hospital. And this is something said again and again in that classic special tone of voice that we find within the institution. So a real approach was locating and reorienting the individual within the institution. And this could be simplified and repeated. It could become louder. So rather than actually seeing there might be a way that we, we could talk to the patient, it actually became more of a reduction to the essentials of, the, of an instruction. So sit in the chair, sit down, very simplified, and also um, reorienting to people to what had happened to them. You've had a fall, you've broken your hip. Um, so this was really, I think I wanted to show this to share, actually this is kind of the limits of how staff in non-specialist dementia wards talk to people with dementia. This is everyday communication. Rule two, you must not wander. As a researcher, I could wander the wards and actually lots of younger patients were able to wander the wards. However, for people living with dementia, I mean, obviously there is a risk of falls and absolutely every star, every ward is assessed on falls risk. And that is a really, really powerful um, anxiety for ward staff. However, this could really escalate to not just um, uh, being encouraging people to be careful or to use equipment or support to walk or to ask for help, but really containing people at the bedside. So really repeated warnings of danger, imminent danger, and the consequences of behavior, i.e. leaving the bedside. You must communicate your needs in institutionally recognized ways. Well, of course, for someone living with dementia, this can be difficult, particularly with an additional acute condition. And within these wards, it was really powerfully felt by, I'd say by staff that actually, if people living with dementia communicated um, verbally a really clear direct re request or used the 
uh, bedside personal alarm, that was seen as care that they recognised, but also that institutionally they felt able to respond to. It was it was a mandated call that they could they could justifiably interrupt work and, and attend to. However, the more subtle um, embodied communication from people living with dementia was something that actually staff either didn't notice, didn't recognise, or felt they couldn't actually respond to in the fast pace of the work of the ward. It was just something that they couldn't they couldn't see, and if they could see, they couldn't respond to. This embodied communication was also often seen as something that was um, could be recognised by ward staff as something um, as resisting to care, being disruptive or in a, inappropriate. And if that kind of communication was missed or um, ignored within the wards, then it could really lead to a loss of distress for the person. I think um, etiquette and discipline is really important here as well, because it wasn't just enough for people to living with dementia to um, eat a meal or to um, to get dressed, but it had to be done in particular ways. There was far more containment over how the body looked, a focus on cleanliness and bodily discipline. So if someone was able to eat a bowl of soup, but spill it, and frankly, eating a bowl of soup in bed is quite a difficult task, that was seen as something that had to be managed and stopped by staff. The thought of spillages was something that staff really felt they had to control and that could lead to someone being seen as someone who needed to be um, assisted with feeding and eating a meal. Care must fit the timetables. This is really, really important. Staff had such a deep fear of an underlying anxiety of delays to the organisational timetable of care within the wards and a real fear of falling behind. And this is something we see in institutional ward life um, you know, since the, um, the ethnographies in the 1950s and 60s, and it's still powerfully there within our wards. So care has to be done at particular times. So we have things like we have to change you, really emphasising staff status in the ward. Um, everybody, everybody must fit the expectations and the timetables of the institutions. But it also meant that other really key care needs could get lost. So for example, continence needs, and the urgency of continence needs. Really, if they did not fit the timetable, it really meant that um, staff could not respond to those needs or, or they, they became unrecognised. So these urgent needs that people with dementia might have in the context of the rigid, rigid timetable was really very problematic for people living with dementia. So why are these... Um, understandings of the rules important? Well, I think they fundamentally demonstrate the understandings of recognition of dementia within our acute wards. Acute wards that are staffed by non-experts in dementia. It really shapes their understandings of dementia as something that, as a condition, does not belong within the hospital wards. It does not fit the rules, it does not fit the timetables. This patient group do not fit the order and the order doesn't change. What we have instead is we get a tightening of the timetables as we have more patients in the wards that don't 
um, follow the timetable and care needs that fit in nicely into the timetables. What we found was a real tightening of these timetables to really try and kind of condense people within them. And if people weren't able to, to, um, to recognize the timetables, then it was seen as a feature of dementia. So it was seen as dementia as someone who was um, uh, demonstrating behavior. So behavioral and psychological features of dementia. So it's seen as behavior, seen as a problem, seen as disruptive. At the same time, that individual could also be seen by staff as being willful and willfully rejecting the order of the ward and the timetables and rules within it. And this again could really reinforce staff understandings of the condition and these patients as, as an individual and as groups. And what we ended up with is seeing really cultures of containment and restraint. So we found high levels of restrictive practices within the wall, all the wards that we observed. Uh, this could um, range from verbal commands, as we've seen, you're in hospital, but that could extend to stop, sit, stay, don't get up. Um, indirect uh, approaches to keep people at the bed or bedside, clinical technologies, um, such as continence pads being used to keep people at the bedsides. Um, also, safety technologies could be repurposed as restrictive practices, but also staff um, care and um, uh, um, um, agency staff could be used to um, provide one-to-one -one specialing and containment as well, and also seclusion. And we saw that within all the wards that we observed. And I'm just going to end because I don't want to go too long but just say that I think one thing that we found really powerfully is actually although staff tended to see people living with dementia as a group that didn't belong didn't fit the timetables of care and thus were um, uh, a group that were um, problematic um, and really hard to manage within this acute ward Actually, what we found was actually the distress of people living with dementia, the behavioural features that they were seen as, as expressing were actually a normal response to being in this abnormal setting, a sensitive population in this fast paced environment. Really actually um, uh, caused an awful lot of distress for people living with dementia. And I'm just going to end in really a sense that actually it takes us back to Goffman at the sense of um, institutional looping. These routines of timetables, restrictive practices and restraint, the language, the rules, all part of actually really shaping the responses of people living with dementia in these wards and really shaped also their decline and this kind of pattern of, um, of distress. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much for um, this very important paper giving us insight into um, hospital settings. And of course, as you said, it's a much more, it's a much darker uh, um, paper than, than the previous one. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, 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 not at all. It's very relevant, of course. And I was really struck by how relevant Foucault's work on 
the disciplinary function of modern institutions still is. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna uh, hand over to Ulla. Thank you so much, Katie, for this wonderful presentation. And thank you also for sharing your book, your book and your book chapter with me. And I can only highly recommend it to everyone. Um, it's, your work is great. And I don't actually, it's of course a bit dark, but I don't think it has to be seen like that in the context of our symposium, because you showed us so nicely in a nutshell how dementia is always seen as disruption in our world, as deficit, as something that's really not normal. And I think if we think of that in the humanities also, we can see it in, as a metaphor of how, um, but we can see it as an example of how we can actually change the world for patients or people living with dementia if we look on, at your example. So I'm a bit more optimistic because of our symposium also, and because of the opportunities we've got here for interdisciplinary research. I think it actually relates quite well to Hillary's paper on the value of arts in hospitals, on the value of individuality, of personhood. And when Hillary pointed out the climate of nervousness and anxiety that we all feel when we have an appointment in hospital, then this is of course something that people living with dementia also experience very strongly and perhaps even more strongly because sometimes, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but sometimes there is this seismographic um, um, quality also. Um, stuck on their islands in the wards, and I love this metaphor, there aren't many bridges in such a ward that can be built to reach them. And nobody really cares about these bridges. And I think that's what you do with your research. And these bridges are crucial, as you've pointed out. And you've been wandering these wards. And this is a spatial metaphor that I'd like to come back to a little later. For many years, observing, talking to patients, and that's important, talking to carers, talking to their relatives. And you've shown that the acute setting, the hospital ward, is an important site to change the quality of care for people living with dementia. That's a pressing, pressing issue. But I think we can learn from that that the quality of care for people with dementia has to change in general, also in, in nursing homes, also with the timetables where it doesn't really matter if you wash their hair at four in the morning or not, but other things matter. And it seems so hard for us to get used to this, um, to this different kind of take on the world that different things matter. So in order to change this quality and the cultures of care and the settings and the spaces and places where care happens, um, really institutions need to change. People with dementia are literally out of place in the hospital wards that you described and they go there because of other issues and suddenly the aspect of dementia is no longer normal as it is in care homes, but it's a confounding variable. It's always something disruptive. And I just taught a class on medical humanities to 11 medical students in the 10th semester, and they had no clue about dementia. That's the Austrian system, geriatric medicine at the University of Graz, for instance, has been abolished. There is no longer any training in geriatric medicine. And the students told me, yeah, we know what dementia or mild cognitive or severe cognitive impairment is, but we really don't have a clue. We don't know people who have dementia, and only two or three of them had grandparents with a condition. But they just never think about it. And that this is also where I think the humanities need to come in, not just as the arts, putting up uh, artwork, which is important too, but also the analysis of texts and of films together with such students, um, who, medical students. Um, so I think what you point out very nicely is that medical humanities really need to be implemented a little more. And you've made it clear to us that people living with dementia 
even though they make up a significant percentage of patients in hospital wards, are a burden still to life on the ward. That behavior is considered as disruptive. And um, actually, it contributes this, 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 um, um, this understanding of disruption and the care um, setting of the hospital ward causes deaths. And that there is this ageism too that's linked to this. It's ageism plus fear of dementia plus neglect of people living with dementia. I think it's just really a, a this, yeah, this, this disrespect for, for people with dementia that is killing them. And Margaret Gillette pointed that out so nicely in a, in a recent article on COVID and, and the aging in nursing homes. Of course, you're also aware of the fact that it's important that caregivers also work in these settings. They also work in precarious conditions and under time constraints, and they receive very little appreciation. This predominantly negative discourse uh, this cursive construction of aging and care is problematic for them too, and because we all feel to, uh, we all long to feel at home with how we live, work, and age. And the hospital ward is just diametrically opposed to what we usually experience as home. And and what Anne also pointed out was your um, the, the connection to Michel Foucault's um, birth of the clinic and the geneal genealogy of the development of this development of this institution. Just like the church, the military, the university, a clinic, a hospital is really resistant to change. And so you have examined these material realities and the spatial practices that constitute the ward and the discursive structures, looking at the discursive structures, I think is important also as a literary critic that make up a hospital's culture. And you've done this from an ethnographic perspective involving carers and people with dementia. And, um, you tell us that you've talked to people with dementia and that's, I, I want to, to highlight that, that's important because not many researchers bother to do this and that's highly relevant for systemic change as well, um, to heal from invisibility as you write in your um, preface. That they have told you that you've helped them in some small way to provide a tremendous sense of self-worth. So when people become institutional bodies, as Elaine Wiersma and Sherry Dupuis have, have called it, when they talked about people who come to nursing homes or are moved into nursing homes, then they are intercalated in Althusserian terms into this role, into these embodiments of the fourth age. And it's this ageism that we um, encounter there. I think it's important to mention that too. And also the embodied selfhood that you talked about. And that, um, reminded me of Pia Contos' work, and I think you were aware of that too, the embodied selfhood, the embodied identity. And I remember her story from a conference when she talked about um, a woman who always made a row, a woman living with dementia, when she got this uh, bib for lunch, this plastic bib. She hated it because she was a, a lady and she wanted the string of pearls to be placed outside. And as soon as that had been done, she was quiet, she was calm, no disruptive behavior anymore. She just wanted the pearls to be seen, but she couldn't say it. But that was this little gesture the caregivers had to do, and then she was okay. So there's this kind of embodied identity there. And what constitutes this culture? I think that's this important question that I'd like to ask, and I'd love to collaborate with you a little bit with this uh, on your research there, because we just filed a proposal where we do a dispositive analysis in the sense of Michel Foucault, um, with a team of researchers from architecture, literature, nursing, science, sociology, ethics, and philosophy. And we are going to investigate some hybrid care spaces in Austria. 
So not institutional settings and also not um, um, private settings, but these kind of hybrid spaces where you have a carer, but it's like a, a, a farm, for instance, for people with dementia. And we are looking at the, the Foucauldian dispositive uh, in, in the sense that he calls a heterogeneous ensemble consisting of discourses of institutions, architectural forms, regulatory decisions, laws, administrative measures, scientific statements, philosophical, moral, and philanthropic propositions, as he says, that make up a system of relations. And that's, I think, what you call hospital culture, too. And looking at this from a spatial lens, like the Ferrer's, uh, for instance, spatial triad, where you see uh, the, construct the construction of the space and the representation of space, too, I think that would be a great project where we could collaborate and wandering the words to come to conclude. The metaphor is already uh, very significant there. This points to the importance of the space and the lens of, 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 the, of this spatial construction, the spatial turn that allows us to analyze this. I think we can change the culture of dementia care. Thanks. And sorry for being a bit too long here. Oh, that's fine. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Ulla, for your uh, detailed response. And of course, there are so many, so many responses already in the chat and questions. So the last uh, speaker today is my colleague Desmond Tobin, who is professor of dermatological science at UCD. And normally, I think it's it's fair to say that our paths would not have crossed that often. So I'm really delighted uh, that you are contributing to our um, webinar series, Des. So Des has uh, researched in basic and applied skin and hair <clears throat> hair sciences with a particular focus on the regulation of hair growth in health and in disease. And he's also explored how skin and hair function changes with age due both to chronologic intrinsic and behavioral or extrinsic drivers. And I think we're gonna hear a bit about this today. So uh, this paper today is our aging skin. Can we ever feel comfortable in it or with it? Thank you very much, Anne, and it's a great uh, pleasure to contribute to this particular workshop and also in this particular way. Uh, as a biomedical researcher, uh, I'd like to provide some of the biological um, context by which we humans kind of frame the perception, at least, of our aging. And um, can you see my, my slides? You can. Very good. Um, and then perhaps a talk a little bit as to, to, to the extent to which this may be hardwired. Uh, by that, I mean, you know, driven by by evolutionary selective pressure that would have uh, you know, had a big uh, impact in terms of how our genetic uh, um, coding has occurred over this period. I'll try to do most of this, if not all of this, with as little uh, jargon uh, as, as possible. Um, keep an eye on this lady here uh, under the Time Magazine banner. She'll appear later on in the presentation um, as, as well, if I can get these slides to move. So um, we humans essentially are a species born under the sun. And in that sense, we, we distinguish ourselves from our, our great primate cousins who essentially were born under the canopy of the jungle, really. Um, and this fact alone is perhaps one of the most uh, significant and powerful drivers of what it is to, to be human. Um, as we lost our dense uh, hair and fur and became really the best sweaters of all uh, the mammals, uh, as we needed to run for our food in these sun-drenched uh, open plains and, and savannas. And as you can see from this uh, wonderful kind of uh, palette of the human family um, here in this particular picture, uh, most kind of identified by the diversity in 
skin and and, and hair and, and also eye color, but also you know textures of of, of these uh, tissues as as well. This really underpins our different geographic ancestries, um, and the most kind of marked contribution uh, to this uh, geographic ancestry is geographic land latitude, and by that I mean um, where uh, humans uh, you know uh, developed in the context of the highest UV dosages, and by that I mean the highest uh, sunlight, uh, particularly uh, out and around um, the the the, um, the equator. And as human migrations moved away from the equator, um, there was a requirement uh, to uh, adopt a lighter uh, skin pigmentation to maximize uh, sunlight getting into the skin, because that's our best way of making uh, vitamin D. And I'll talk briefly about that as well. Um, in this kind of little scheme here to the right, you can see uh, the impact of uh, incident solar radiation and how it interacts with the skin, and particularly um, the damage of uh, this UV ore uh, to our DNA and leading to obviously the visible signs of changes of, of aging that we see here. And in this particular quite famous picture now, it's a truck driver uh, where you can see that the the window facing side of his face is significantly aged or extrinsically aged, photo aged, by comparison to the cabin uh, facing side of his face. So the external impact of the environment here has had a dramatic influence in the visual signs of aging and I guess the perception of that individual in terms of their age as well. Um, the other thing to mention here that we humans are absolutely obsessed with faces and of course our own faces. Uh, and this is perhaps uh, not surprising for a species that is really uh, intensely socially interactive uh, and the drivers that that's uh, the, the uh, social interaction drivers that that will have brought upon us. Uh, here are a few examples uh, where um, how we are programmed really to see faces, even when there are no faces, um, but also to see the importance of faces in terms of, of, of emotional bonding, as you can see there in that chimpanzee picture, and also our, our predilection to be mesmerized by, by faces and our perception of someone else's face. Um, unfortunately, of course, we can't help ourselves from, from reacting differently to how we see faces as attractive or not. And um, this is often, again, uh, hardwired in terms of our nervous system and other systems. But unfortunately, of course, this significantly can influence you know, our decision-making and other responses we have to how we look upon um, uh, you know, the face in particular, but, but the body also. And you can see in this particular picture, we have a range of, of different presentations here, but, but we all uh, react very individually um, to how we, we present, how we feel we should present ourselves in terms of the face to meet the faces that we meet. Um, now, obviously most people would feel complimented if they were uh, told by somebody else that they looked younger uh, for their age than, than older for their age. So there is that fundamental uh, inescapable um, uh, you know, uh, quality for us all. Uh, and there's a good reason for this. Um, you know, the way we actually, uh, the age of how we look, uh, the way we look in terms of our age can give a very strong signal in terms of our health and, and indeed fecundity. More on that uh, a little bit later. Um, we often hear that, that, that beauty is skin deep, um, but actually we're also becoming increasingly uh, in tune with what is lying beneath the surface of the face as we understand that it becomes a proxy for 
for other changes that are occurring uh, within, within our bodies. And in that regard, um, just to uh, show some emerging uh, gerontological um, uh, data that's coming through in the last year, uh, that revealing that we very much do respond um, visually as a species, uh, both interpreting ourselves, but also interpreting the health of others. And indeed, their mortality and their likely longevity um, emerging uh, evidence is suggesting that facial appearance really does reflect these fundamental body-wide systemic uh, changes and indeed our risk for developing disease uh, in the immediate future. And these cues, the cues that we see mapped out on our, our aging faces, our aging bodies are much stronger than, than any cues that would come from hairstyle or from clothing. And you can see in the kind of uh, little um, uh, a scheme of pictures there where we have moved the hair and, and, and the clothes between the different faces, the, the ob observation of age likely remaining uh, life uh, span and potential for underlying disease uh, are very finely uh, interpretable from the face and not from those um, other elements of clothes uh, and, and, and hair. Um, of course, earlier conversation, Anne, we're talking about the, you know, the, the, the other drivers, the societal drivers here, uh, in terms of what we've seen in the last, uh, say, 100 years in the West. And there's an enormous economic push and pull with all of this, um, especially when living in a media and social media saturated world where there is this kind of almost unending drift toward clonality and groupthink. Uh, that we see uh, in, in, in particularly in Western societies. But, but in the end of, of the day, there's a buck to be made and, uh, and, and livelihoods therefore to be, to be sustained from, from, from those uh, dollars and euros made. Uh, so that's obviously an, an important consideration in all of this. In this next slide, I'm just gonna go back a little bit to the, bi to the biology of this again and indicate that um, obviously our face and, 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 and aging face is incredible uh, and powerful. Uh, genetic and social signal, but the skin is our body's largest organ, and it sits at the interface between our inner world and this external noxious world, and it's really quite unique in that, in, in, in that particular sense. It's an ancient organ. It first appears during our embryogenic journey alongside the brain, and during early life forms on planet Earth, long before you would invest in creating a brain or a, or a central nervous system or a spine, all of the information had to be both detected and processed through the skin. So the skin is and, and the brain have very strong overlapping paradigms. So we can't underestimate it. It's not just a sack holding in all our important organs. It's really one of the defining interaction sites with the world um, around us. Um, as you can see from, from the picture there on the left, um, this, the, the skin sensor has got multiple antennas for a huge number of interaction events that can happen between the body you know, and the world around us. And the image on the right, without going into great detail, it's just really to say that this is a fractal uh, situation going on here. We have a, a, a basically a stress axis or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis in the periphery in our skin. That's really um, a mimic of that which we have in the brain and in the spinal column. So uh, we believe indeed that the, the skin is a primordial uh, vestigial brain uh, and therefore captures a, a lot of, of the functionality that we had seen to be exclusively the domain um, of the brain up, up until very, very uh, recently. 
Um, and, and the last point there, as you can see down here, is, is basically how, therefore, the stress um, axis can be seen in the skin and how individual uh, people's feelings can be mapped out in the brain and, and their stressful life experiences can be detected, sorry, in the skin. This kind of plays a little bit back to a comment made, I think, by Tara, where she was commenting on that you can't measure something, you can't manage something. So it's possible, for example, to to predict well-being from, from, from the way people age in terms of their face. And it may be also possible to measure some of these key hormones, circulating hormones, as a marker of well-being and whether an art or music therapy is having a, a, a direct benefit. This is a bit of my own research here, where a few years ago we showed that the skin uh, makes a lot of endorphin, beta endorphin. Uh, and for those of you who haven't done biology in the background, we have some skin sections here, the epidermis, the outer layer of the skin section. And in red, we show beta endorphin. And these yellow cells are the pigment producing cells, the melanocytes. And under the influence of the sun, these melanocytes become hyperactive and produce lots of more melanin to protect the skin from this damaging UV. The skin also has a, an opiate, uh, sorry, an opioid receptor, in this case, mu opiate receptor. So the skin is incredibly influenced by both this uh, beta endorphin uh, uh, synthesis, but also the receptor to respond to it. And indeed, if we throw beta endorphin on top of melanocytes in the lab, we can get them to make me much more melanin, indeed, a tanning response, uh, for want of a better word. And uh, subsequent to this particular paper, a group in Harvard has actually shown that you can have mammals addicted to sunlight because of the impact it has on beta endorphin um, as a consequence of the stimulation through UV. But of course, we have, as, this, as the title says up here, the very much the downside of, of sunlight on our skin with age spots on the top, with melanoma as seen here. And this clearly addicted uh, a person here who has allowed their skin to change in this very dramatic way through this constant exposure uh, to the sun. So there's a very, very uh, interesting relationship between um, the uh, interaction with an aging stimulus like UV and a well-being stimulus like uh, beta endorphin. Indeed, sunlight is the only WHO, um, ent uh, the only entity on the WHO carcinogen list that is good for you. All of the other things on the WHO carcinogen list are bad for you, but UV light actually has this Janus-faced interaction. And of course, it's because we evolved under the sun. Now, this is really a reflection of where the skin can really start to pick up um, a lot of how you, you feel as a person and how you're coping with, with your life and with your life uh, trajectory. And here we see a woman um, who shows a very dramatic change in both texture and color of her, of her hair uh, that coincided with a very, very uh, psycho psychologically stressful period with the death of her husband during, during wartime. And it again shows you this brain-skin axis that's incredibly important in terms of how we map our lives through our skin and through particularly our aging or stressed skin. And uh, this paper here is, shows a very nice study where just measuring cortisol level, so-called stress hormone level in the skin can give you an indication to your likely you know, familial uh, longevity, your kind of, uh, your positive family history of of longevity, but also the perception of your age. So if you have high circulating stress levels, you're going to show it in your face sooner rather than later, and it will shorten your life sooner rather than later. And I'm gonna finish up now with a couple of um, examples of where this is played out in people that you know. 
Um, so here I have a picture on the on the right of one of Ireland's talents alongside with her mother. And I think uh, those who are, of you who are particularly astute will start to see uh, maybe the first chapter um, being played out here in this young girl's uh, life. But I'm not going to say anything, but just let you see um, the pictures as we go through. So I think you can see in, by looking at somebody's face, not only what age that they have, uh, you know, more or less, but also the, their, 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 their psychological status and how they feel in terms of how they feel about themselves and how they may think others feel about them. Um, in the next uh, uh, case, I just want to show you um, another timeline of an individual, uh, single individual, uh, John Travolta. And, and, and here you can see, uh, the attempt of this individual to reveal, uh, and then in, 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 in his young age, and then to disguise their many uh, inner lives, but essentially um, this physical embodiment of, of their inner self is inescapable, including, you know, via, via aging. Here we have um, Schwarzenegger. Here we have Mickey O'Rourke. And here we have um, oh, uh, she's the fashion designer whose name has just es escaped me. But, but here you can clearly see that um, society can create a very unforgiving place in terms of how people present themselves and how people want to, to, to age. And uh, really, uh, we've lost, I, I think, the connection that we had years and years ago, previous generations of unto thine own self be true uh, as, you, as you're working your way through, through aging. And then with the last slide, I just want to uh, uh, get you to, to have a look at this uh, Japanese tradition, this great J Japanese tr tradition. When the Japanese mend a broken object, they fill them in with gold. They believe that when, someone's, when something suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. It's time to rethink perhaps our philosophy of aging. So with that, I'll stop. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, um... Des, for, for sharing some of your research and translating it into um, non-technocratic uh, uh, language for us. And now we'll have Robert's uh, response to your paper. So um, it's coming from the perspective of the arts, I'm assuming, but I'm handing over to Robert. Thank you, Des, uh, for your inspiring talk. Uh, your paper prompts me to consider how a dermatological approach and a humanities approach can challenge and complement each other, specifically in the context of the Framing Aging program. At the beginning of your talk, you speak of our intense and innate fascination with faces. So this fascination has a biological anchoring, the signals of which can be found in the way our brains respond to faces. As a philosopher, I'm of course thinking here of the French philosopher Levinas. Levinas' philosophy reminds me that looking at faces engages me in a relation that profoundly differs from uh, any other visual encounter. The effect of the face of the other is in Levinas' philosophy, a moral effect. It is an appeal to responsibility for the other, my fellow human being. Now, Levinas, Levinas doesn't speak of the condition of the facial skin of the other. And the interesting thing about Desmond's remark, remarks is that he describes 
the skin of the face as a morally charged canvas, different from Levinas' face as a moral appeal. The condition of the facial skin of the other invites me, on the one hand, to think about the other in moral terms. Think of our judgments of Travolta, Schwarzenegger, and, and Versace. On the, other, on the other hand, the condition of the skin of the other invites me to strategic self-reflection about the relation between the condition of my own skin, my identity, and my perceived morality and social status. Levinas' notion of face appears to function like a metaphor, indicating a feeling of obligation the other demands before all consciousness and perception, rather than a visually apprehensible surface. In this respect, Levinas' notion of the face fits our response to early modern painting of faces, of portraits. There are countless books and articles in which physicians, dermatologists, describe on the basis of an early modern portrait what skin disease the depicted person would suffer from. Still, in early modern paintings, the medical condition of the skin does not automatically lead the beholder to a moral judgment about the person depicted. But we allow ourselves as, as beholders to be addressed on the social or political status or the moral dignity of the person. We look at early modern portraits from a Levinasian, Levinasian point of view. From the two articles that uh, Des discusses, it appears that we are able to estimate reasonably well on the basis of someone's face, the age and health condition of someone. Mortality is written on the face. Research has also shown that from a medical point of view, the skin provides more or less objective signals of the underlying biological mechanism associated with health and mortality. These underlying biological mechanisms are in part our own responsibility. Think of epigenetics, the microbiome, lifestyle and nutrition. Actually, this points to a dermatological turn that overturns Levinas' insistent appeal to humanity grounded in the sight of the other. Instead, from a dermatological perspective, facial skin is a clear marker of our moral character. The confrontation with the face of the other is no longer an appeal to humanity. Dermatology teaches us that the face of the, of the other always give rise to a moral judgment of the other, which may reduce his or her humanity. And remember again, our judgments uh, about Travolta, Schwarzenegger and Versace. Uh, I don't know the other one. Uh, in a way, of course, we all have known this for a long time, which is why the skin trade is flourishing so well. Nevertheless, the medical domain increasingly places the responsibility for health and life expectancy on the individual her or himself. And this materializes in public health policies in which lifestyle becomes a moral choice, open to disapproval by public services or by my condescending social environment. For me, this paper is a call to do more research into the far-reaching philosophical implication 
of the entanglement of medical beliefs, facts and therapies, and moral and cultural values. Thank you very much, uh, Robert, for your philosophical response based on Levinas's notion of the face. Uh, that's really excellent and the kind of um, um, dialogue we, we want to uh, engage in here. Now, uh, we've had three fantastic papers and I'm we have a, a chat, chat function that is full of, of great, great comments and questions. Julia Twig uh, made a comment about Hillary's paper. And uh, maybe if Julia is still here, you can actually, uh, you know, make your own comment about this. This was really about the negative impact of, of artworks that are disliked. And this refers back to Hillary's comment about Northern Ireland, where, of course, particular types of music are associated with um, particular identities that exclude others. Yeah, I think it's interesting in that like most hospitals would have some rules going back, I think, to what Katie was talking about, rules about art in the hospital. So, you know, we had a whole policy around you know nothing political, nothing overtly religious, nothing that advertised brands. So we had a wonderful photography exhibition and one of the images had a kind of Guinness and we had to take it down because it was advertising alcohol. So, you know, there's a whole load of, I suppose, rules. But I think the other thing to say is that it, it's a really tricky area that curating um, because every piece of art will offend somebody, you know, you can't really, um, you know, you can't really go with preference. And when we do, which often happens in a hospital context, we end up with highly conservative exhibitions of safe uh, art. And that then, you know, then there's the question of, you know, is art uh, about pr provocation and challenge? Is that appropriate in a healthcare setting? You know, I think there are fine lines to be balanced there. And what we always did was have quite wide consultation with stakeholders so that a committee of people agreed what art went on the wall. So that then if there was a problem, that there was more, there were clinicians, senior clinicians involved, managers, you know, artists, because then I suppose there was some joint ownership of the decisions. But it is tricky. And another example that I came across was a beautiful photography exhibition about a woman's journey through chemotherapy, hair loss and out the other end, very positive. But we couldn't show it in the hospital because, it, you know, it seemed to be quite insensitive in that women coming in who hadn't yet even or maybe were only just diagnosed were seeing these images of, you know, quite advanced treatment. So that wouldn't be appropriate. But the art galleries wouldn't take it either. So um, now I, I do believe it was high quality art. So I don't think that was the issue, but it's where does it fit? You know, where do we look at this kind of work? So some of my thoughts in response to your question. Okay, thank you for that. And of course it ties in with Ta Tara Burns uh, response to you. You know, she raised the question of the tension between um, freedom of art, the autonomy of art on the one hand, and the instrumentalization of art in the hospital setting, because obviously you've just given us an example of certain works of art which are considered to be inappropriate in a hospital setting because they might have a, a, a detrimental effect. Can you comment a bit on this? Um, you know, is it is this tension, uh, could, could this tension be addressed perhaps in a different way rather than by uh, censoring um, Provo provocative, uh, provocative art or more provocative art? Um, I think it's quite tricky. Um, 
I think there will always be some censoring in a healthcare context. You know, it isn't an art gallery, it has a different function. And I think the first function of art in a hospital isn't necessarily the, you know, the intrinsic value. It's about instrumental, isn't it? I think that may be controversial, but it's about creating an atmosphere and a and a place. Um, I'm not sure, I don't know if anyone else wants to come in on that. I'd be interested to hear. Yeah. Just to say, um, well, I suppose the reassuring thing is that we have been able to edge towards uh, questioning um, and often quite subversive. So we had one artist who came, listened to what patients were saying uh, and then stenciled what they'd said on the walls. And it was outside our own department. It said, just listen. So I think they might have been talking. <laughs> they said, I sit here in my pajamas and 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 slippers and dressing gown and nobody pays any attention to me. Uh, we've had quite stark um, but interesting uh, representations of dementia. Um, so I, I think there is a question of being uh, up for it. Um, I've put in a very nice um, paper reference there around the challenge of how we do curation in, in art spaces. So I think there is room for a degree of questioning and probing, but I think there needs to be a sense of gentleness and kindness in a way that perhaps an art gallery can doesn't necessarily have to have. I think Tara, you wanted to come in. Thanks, Des, for that and for giving us an example. Tara, do you want to? Thank you. Um, I suppose it's just kind of um, underlining that one of the points, or the the key point I was trying to make is that the instrumentalism is very tricky to get a consensus on, even though it might seem that it's it it isn't. So you know, Hillary, when you say that it's the kind of the first function really of of art, or if if I'm understanding you in hospital situations or care situations, I mean, I agree with you, but I suppose um, it's the fact that if you think of art for art's sake or intrinsic values of the arts to do with the, the, the personal experience that someone has when they engage with a, an art, a work of art, whether it's a book or a sculpture or music or whatever it is, it's that that experience in and of itself leads to all these other experiences which someone else might view as instrumental because it's the, it's the engagement the connection the well-being sometimes the sociability that comes with talking about the artwork with other people and the connecting into feeling like you're part of humanity because you've recognized an expression of something that you felt yourself or all of these millions of you know ways that we experience the arts that actually leads to all those well-being outcomes and I think if there is anything to be said about using the term instrumental, which I use all the time by myself, by the way, I'm not pretending I don't. And I'd probably be seen as someone on the purest side of things, but is that um, it works hand in hand, you know, with with intrinsic, I suppose, experiences of the arts. Um, but the intrinsic can't be lost. So I'm always the one flying the flag. If you don't have the intrinsic, you won't get the extrinsic it starts with the intrinsic, I think. Mm -hmm. And in any case, it is, I think, not predictable how works of art are being received. You know, there isn't a kind of, this is the problem with the instrumentalizing approach to works of art. It's not predictable how a seemingly disturbing work of art is perceived. So for example, the depiction of, of um, um, bold women uh, doesn't necessarily have to um, impact negatively on, on people with cancer, I would say, but okay, 
let's perhaps move on. We have lots of questions in the chat. So there is a question for Katie Goffman, why Goffman is still relevant, or the same could apply to Foucault. Why is it that they are still relevant? Doing my analysis, I really tried to stay true to the analysis that I was developing over the years, emerged in these hospital wards, really ordinary everyday wards in England and Wales. And there really isn't an awful lot of sociology or anything that was really grabbing me that I could go, that's really high quality at the time. That was about five years ago. There's a few amazing people, but I really, at the time, I wasn't really feeling anything was seeing what I was seeing. So I went back to those classics and, you know, I, yes, I did kind of make a nod to Goffman at the end there, but I'd say actually the classics, the old ethnographies of institutional life are so powerful because actually as soon as I started reading them, it was, I'm seeing my world. It was so vividly, you know, when, when I think about Julius Roth and his work, the, um, the uh, rehabilitation of the unwanted. It's such a, um, I think, such an, a profound piece that it really resonated with the, the general acute wards that I was seeing. But I would say I don't, I use them to show the, dur the durability of the, of these patterns of institutional life, that actually they exist in the 1950s in America, in the UK, in you know it's that durability that I think is is so important because it shows us actually it's an incredibly resistant setting and mm. what I think is always surprises me about medicine you know before I moved into looking at um, the fields of dementia I was looking at clinical ge genetics and genomics and it's all about technology new tech and let's just it's almost like chasing the new technology to 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 examine as a sociologist, but also to use in the clinic. And there seems to be so much technology and focus on new technology coming into these institutional hospital environments, yet the world of the ward is absolutely a long duration of this ward is, is immutable, it seems. You, you, can, you, can, you can look at, um, at uh, a description of wars in 1950s mental hospital in um, in Massachusetts and look at my data and actually see so many commonalities mm. that and that's the power that that seems like it's not shifting you know we put all the all the expert all the all the the power in all the money and focus on technology but actually the work of the bedside and its impact is just unexamined and seen as unimportant. And, and I think, I think <laughs> if I can just quickly respond, I think that's because of our lack of recognition of the role of power in that in those relationships. And um, I have to say, I thought Dez's was such a lovely presentation because he really showed, you know, a, a doctor or you know, a hard scientist taking this much more holistic view. Uh, but in general, I think that we haven't got that political movement that is going to question. The institutionalization people of, of people with dementia yet and that maybe the pandemic will provide some kind of impetus for that but I also think that if you look at what's happened with disability rights and how the disability uh, movement through people with disability themselves speaking up for themselves uh, that that's actually how they've managed to change things and it was I think Thatcher in the UK who actually didn't want to pay for these big hospitals full of people with 
mental health problems that actually ended up pe people being freed, being freed, you know, and to live in the community and things and, and mental health issues becoming much more accepted. And we're not there at all with dementia. We're not there at all. There's a deep, there's a deep ingrained fear of that position and of those people that we, we have. And until we recognize our future selves and those wrinkly faces that Des was showing us, uh, and until we can kind of realize that this is a political problem, not just a personal problem, then we're going to end up in one of those places, I'm afraid, unless we can, you know, tackle it in that way. But your work is so powerful, Katie, for addressing yeah. it. Thanks, Gemma. And I, and I just, just to add to that, I think the, the politicize, you know, the, we have to politicize the, um, the lack of change here. I think you're absolutely right. And something that really struck me is I've been, I'm still reading ethnographies from hospitals, from wherever I can find them. And there's some really interesting stuff that actually talks about um, clinicians and nurses being very political in the hospital settings. And in my observations, that politics is really absent. That sense of actually staff feeling empowered to make change, it's not there in the hospital wards. And I think that for me is also really, it's also ethnography can capture those absences. And I'm trying to kind of capture those as well as the mm. kind of sensory stuff mm. and the culture. Those absences are really important. And why, well, yeah, why because it, it is both those relationships, of course, the, the, absolutely. The people who are caring as well, of course, are under. Yeah, under. yeah. power is important yeah. and they feel yeah. they have none. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, so I think the issue of agency comes up in terms of, you know, mm. I think I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that the staff uh, in, in NHS hospitals are extremely pressurized most of the time. So, of course, these, these rationalization in terms of allotting time are part and parcel of a modern institution very hard wired into them and therefore difficult to change but I've been wondering to what extent your diagnosis um, is specific to the UK system uh, or whether we are actually seeing more change elsewhere or is this across the is, with, with, is this finding one that you know you would, would would have in most Western countries more or less? I'm, I'm, I would say that my analysis is absolutely very specific. It's UK and Wales, sorry, um, England and Wales hospitals, and I've really gone for kind of average hospitals and average wards. Nothing special, no terrible care, just judged as in terms of quality as average. However, I'd say my work does seem to be resonating with other people. So a lot of people in Australia see, absolutely see it reflects what's happening there. People are contacting me saying, actually, it, it, it does reflect, but we can't say that. But um, I think it, I'd be surprised if there aren't, if, it, if people don't see those kind of co the commonalities in terms of acute care. And just going back to your kind of your point about pace and speed, and these are fast pressurized places. I think that's also one of those things that's kind of learnt. Pace and speed is something that is really valued in our hospitals. And it's, an, it's another rule. So the rule in the hospitals for staff is you've got to be busy and busy is being, being seen to be fast, fast paced. We stride down corridors. We just you know avoid patients in our in our rush to get to the next one so that kind of pace also creates a culture where slower people who need time to talk who are sensitive get missed yeah. and are seen as don't not belonging here mm -hmm. 
So it's part and parcel of the time regime of modernity, really. Yeah. yeah okay. Exactly. Let's, um, there are uh, many more good questions in the chat, so let's move on a bit. Uh, Des's paper. Um, Des, Des O'Neill had a question, I think. Maybe you want to ask it yourself. This is about looking younger. Yeah, thanks very much. No, it's been one of those things at coffee breaks at gerontology conferences where people say, oh, um, you're, you're looking younger and with kind of a pause and you say, well, actually, was that not a bit ageist? And maybe it's a question of looking more vital or energetic. And it's quite interesting, even the whole issue, there's a relatively paucity around in the gerontology literature around appearance, around dying hair. Um, and, and I think, you know, it feeds into uh, literature that gerontologists may be ageist themselves in much of their discourse. So it is a real challenge around, and I think I put in about Kintsugi or Ruinenwert being interesting tropes to think about uh, looking for our attractiveness at various stages of life um, and not feeding into these currents of negativity towards aging. So it's more a comment than, and I think, you know, Des picked it up uh, well. Okay, yeah. In, the, the, uh, in his talk. Yeah. If I could just briefly so, comment on that, there's also an element of function uh, that's, that's also coming quite strongly through in, in research at the moment. Uh, both the, you know, the phenotypic change, the, you know, the visual change, but there's also, um, even with you know, the cosmetic world, they're all now looking for an impact on function. And previously the regulatory environment for say cosmetics was only about you know, color, smell, touch, texture, but now uh, there's a demand coming through about function. And, and maybe it, it, it goes back to the, you know, the, the comment about um, vitality or, or, or you know, the pace aspect. Uh, where we we're expect to be switched on all the time and and therefore you can't look off at any time if you're supposed to be switched on all the time so it's 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 i think it's it's this societal overlay on what is a a fundamental uh, you know and evolutionary you know uh, consequence we 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 see things that look amiss we're we're hardwired to spot things to look amiss to avoid potentially you know, stumbling across somebody with leprosy, for example, because you may get infected by it. So there is some kind of natural genetic uh, pull and push away from things that look amiss visually and that can be detected easily on the outside because you can't see your liver going wonky. You can't notice a kidney going wonky, but you're using as a proxy what you're seeing you know, on the surface uh, to, to, to backfill, uh, you know, that sense of, of, of fear. Uh, and somewhat you know, tribal kind of fear that may come also with 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 how people view differences that are visual. Um, so I think it's all kind of coming through. You know, science. Uh, I should say biology is very reductionistic, and unfortunately, we 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 don't have the kind of holistic view that we need in terms of of you know being true to the full value of the person. We 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 kind of kind of hive them off into different organs or different tissues one by one, and trying to you know. Um, uh, be reductionistic in terms of our intervention. And I think we need to pull back just because the technology is there, we need to pull back and try and look at more this more holistically. Yeah, and this ties in with Tara's question. This is now we're going into the domain uh, of plastic surgery, uh, which is of course extremely fashionable uh, right now. And uh, the pressure uh, on women to uh, have plastic surgery is increasing, especially if they occupy a very public uh, role. So Tara, Tara's question is, 
I wonder how, or comment, I wonder how plastic surgery has changed the way we perceive each other and assess our attractiveness. In other words, what she's suggesting is that the, the, the technology has the advancing, advancing in quotation marks, uh, technology of plastic surgery has, has affected our self-perception and the perception of others. Because now we look at signs of aging as defects that can be corrected rather than just as other ways of being beautiful. Well, I think there, there are changes going on. For example, there was a time when women and, and men, but mostly women would want plastic surgery work to look invisible afterwards. They would look just better versions of themselves before. Um, so they wouldn't want to look like obviously doctored by the plastic surgeon. But today we have situations now where, where um, people almost want uh, others to know that they've had the plastic surgery, either as a kind of a, an indicator of being able to afford it or, uh, or an indicator of um, being in that kind of social kind of, uh, uh, you know, stratum or whatever. So we've gone from wanting to, to do it, but hide it to now want to do it and make it even obvious. So I think that is kind of uh, changing the perception of, of the value that some people place on plastic surgery. And they will end up, you know, moving away from the more natural, uh, you know, uh, the beauty that would have been kind of elevated in the past to having this rather extreme Instagram-ified version of it. You know. Yeah, sorry, this was Des's question to, I think to all panelists, but perhaps spe specifically to Katie and perhaps also to Hillary, to what extent does the promotion system of nurses uh, favoring being off the wards hollows out the drive to improve conditions and supports? Yeah, just briefly, I mean, yeah. I, it's something I've noticed even a ch secular change is the disempowerment of uh, ward nurse leaders. And I think this is part, I mean, I'd be interested to know Katie's uh, view, but it seems that promotion moves people away from this. I always felt it would be good if they all spent a day working on the wards to be embedded. So a lot of the expertise, the intellectual drive moves to becoming a clinical nurse specialist or an advanced nurse practitioner. And uh, the ward being then hollowed out, I feel, in terms of leadership and, and intellectual drive. Yeah, absolutely does. I think that that is spot on. I think what, what I found was that the wards that I was on absolutely felt very, staff felt very invisible. I think that was one of the powers of ethnography is actually staff on the ward, nurses and healthcare assistants, somebody there with a notebook, <laughs> talking to them about work, observing, noting. Actually, they felt visible. They felt, you know, that actually I was capturing that every day, that they felt very, very invisible, very alone in the work. You know, I've done lots of work on continence care recently. And that's the, the staff who are left to do continence care, you know, it's so, it's seen as basic work, but it's vital it's essential, it's, it's, you know, the heart of caring. And they felt very isolated and invisible in terms of that work and, and how it should be carried out. But absolutely, as people move on, they leave the ward. And there's a real absence in all the wards of senior people. So, the, you know, there's always um, uh, senior nurses, nurses in charge, really really absent nurses in charge of the wards tend would be there sometimes they'd be hiding in their office and actually it's kind of like the the, the power of paperwork and 
the drives of the, the institutional machine really kept them away from the war setting where they needed to be. They needed to be at the bedside shaping care, but they're just not there. And I think one group that really interested me was the, um, the nurse practitioners. Mm -hmm. I thought they had an amazing potential to really start to shape cultures. But what I found, and I'm not saying this is universal, just in the wards I was in, they align themselves with the medical teams and actually really ignored the other, the other nursing and healthcare staff in those wards. They'd march in and out with the medical teams. I know that sounds like, sounds old fashioned, but it, it happens. <laughs> so, you know, those opportunities for shaping culture and shaping bedside care, absolutely. As people with expertise get that expertise, they leave. And yes, and that is absolutely, the bedside is devalued space. And it goes back to the, the PowerPoint that Gemma talked about. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Julia, you wanted to come in. Hi, yeah, I just wanted to pick up while there is still time on something that I thought was important in Hillary's talk, um, which is this idea of the aesthetic, um, the aesthetic importance of everyday objects. And I think some of the awkwardness of our conversation earlier around um, the intrinsic value versus instrumentalized value has to do with the fact that a lot of our language for art was generated by conventions of high art, um, you know, and that actually these um, art history and not museum culture, but certainly art history is catching up and trying to think about words for a vocabulary for the importance of the use of practices around the aesthetic um, of everyday life. Um, and, and, I think there's a connection there also to, um, to Katie's talk in that her ethnography, which I think is like such a fascinating discipline and I want to think a lot more about, but in this context particularly, but um, generates these discursive structures, which as, as Ola um, called them, which connect back to our conversations about literature and the literary as a model in, in, our, um, in our second conference. Um, and the sense that that data has an aesthetic surplus to it and the um, kind of the importance of the aesthetic as um, a category that circulates between disciplines and between hierarchies. Thank you, that's, that's great. Thanks very much for that. One more thing, I'm, I'm really struck by the fact that um, at gerontology conferences, apparently people um, talk about that they look younger than their age. Um, I'm a, you know, I'm surprised by that. It seems to, it seems to run counter to to um, what should be happening. Yeah, but anyway, um, Dana has a comment here. No, it was a wonderful set of papers. Thank you. I um, I especially appreciated the conversation about the classics and and um, what they still have to tell us and how you answered that, Katie. That 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 you know things haven't changed. And a wonderful one that ties back Dessa's presentation to all of this is Laura Nader, another anthropologist, ethnographer on power and plastic surgery. She was writing in the 1990s and, and about that and very worth always looking at how aging is so embedded in the medical industrial complex. So it's more a comment than a question and just gratitude to you all for an interesting morning again. Well. Um, looking at the clock, unless there is a pressing comment, if, if somebody would like to make a final comment, please feel free to do so. If not, um, 
I want to thank you all for fantastic presentations, excellent responses, and a really, really good uh, debate. And of course, we will contact you uh, with a doodle poll for the next and final webinar, which we are planning to use also to discuss our conference topic. So in the meantime, between now and then, if you have a brilliant idea that you would like to share with us for a conference theme or sub-theme, please email us so that we can kind of put it on the agenda for our next webinar. So I'd like to thank you all once more for attending. This has been a great conversation and we'll continue it sometime in April. So have a nice weekend and thank you very much. And bye-bye from me. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Framing Aging. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from our events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie.